And welcome back to one of the most unusual and inspiring shows on the radio, a show that shines a light on people who are living lives of purpose, passion, and adventure, and proves every week how easy it would be for you to do it, too. It's called Growing Boulder. Of course, you know that. I'm Mark. That's Bill over there. Just give us a few minutes, folks, and you'll see for yourself as we bring in world-renowned experts, best-selling authors, and ordinary people who are living extraordinary lives. Man, Mark, you are so right about that. And in the next hour, folks, you're going to hear from a former NPR commentator who talks about the perils of dating when you're over 50. Also, a man who's had a great life despite dealing with Asperger's finds out how tough it can be when his son has it too. Then, a former supermodel who's created Boom, her own line of makeup just for boomers, and the lessons from one of the few remaining luthiers on how to keep your life in tune. Are you ready? It's time to start Growing Bolder. Rolling Stone magazine called her one of the greatest singers of all time. The New York Times said her thunderbolt voice is as embedded in the history of rock and roll as Eric Clapton's guitar or Bob Dylan's lyrics. But you have probably never heard the name because she is a backing vocalist. That's about to end, folks, because now for the first time, the spotlight is finally shining directly on her thanks to a great documentary film called 20 Feet from Stardom. She sung with Sam Cooke, Dionne Warwick, The Beach Boys, Elvis, Tom Jones, Sonny and Cher, too many to mention. She is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the author of a fascinating autobiography titled My Name is Love. Let's say hello to Miss Darlene Love. Hey, Darlene. Hey there, how you guys doing? We're doing great. I love the My Name is Love. It kind of sounds like Bond, James Bond. Uh, You know, it's wonderful, but when we got ready to put the book, you know, by my last name being Love, we couldn't think of anything to say. But they're always confusing me with the crystals, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans. So in the meeting, someone just came up with, well, why don't we say her? Just that her name is Love. (laughs) It's a memorable title. And let's go back very quickly, if we can, to when when you were just a young girl. How do you go from singing in church to becoming a recording artist before you were even out of high school? Well, you meet great people. That's how you do it. Uh, I met the group, the Blossoms. They were already a group while I was still in high school. And they were being coached by an age, a, a guy that was their manager, but he was also a uh, a ranger, and they started doing sessions, and I was with them the first time they ever had a recording session. Uh, someone asked him if he knew any singers, and he said, yes, I have some singers. And that's actually how we started with our very first session with James Darren. <laughs> and it's incredible. How how come you ended up like staying as a backing vocalist instead of moving up to lead? Well, for one thing, I was making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't have to go anywhere but to the recording studios to make it. You know, we didn't have to spend any money on gowns and bands and different traveling all over the country. You could stay in one place and make great money. And that's the, the decision that we had, I had made later on. But as time went on and ladies get older and they get grown and everybody has their own ideas about what they want to do in a group, and a lot of friction started happening, and then I decided, you know, maybe I need to be a solo artist. <laughs> and that was the decision I made. You're going to step out front. You know, I think when a lot of people think of their favorite bands, they can name every player in it except the backing singers. Are backing vocalists kind of the Rodney Dangerfields of music? Do they get no respect? They do, but they don't. The, the respect they get is from the people they're working for. Like when the people could hire the Blossoms, they thought they were hiring, the, and they were hiring the greatest background singers there were. And they would introduce them on stage, but people come to see the artist, not the background singer or the band, even though, though they know it sounds really good. And everybody really knows that when you hear a record playing, you sing the hook, which is what the background singers mm. sing. Like on the do, run, run, run. You sing the do, run, 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 the do, do, run, run, run. run. And whatever the lead sing, you let that go by, and you sing along again. The do, run, 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 the do, run, run. <laughs> Man, Darlene, not only do but you... that's the hook in most background singing. We, the background singers, sing the hook. 
Now, you just proved a point. Not only did you sound great and do you sound great, you're also a pretty attractive woman even now, Darlene Love. Oh, well, thank you. And, and I'm, <laughs> I try I'm, hard. You know, I, I'm wondering about this, though. I'm guessing that back in the day, you were even more irresistible. Did you ever get, you know, uh, you know, the elbow from some of these big stars you were singing oh. with? Oh, yes, a few. Oh. I had a few come my way. Get oh. you, but you know what? If you don't, then something's wrong. Hey. <laughs> You're calling it the elbow now, huh, Bill? <laughs> I just know it's not unusual to be loved by anyone. Uh, you know, Dar- One, two. <laughs> Bill brings up a good point. You know, I would guess that a background singer in the studio, obviously you got to have a great voice, but, you know, background singers, they do catch our eye, uh, you know, on the stage uh, in, in performance. you got to have some good moves. I mean, you you got to you got to be fun to look at, don't you? Yeah, and, you know, I also had a name as a background singer even while I was out on the road because working with Phil Spector in the 60s, I had a couple of hit records, but I still went out as a background singer. And if we were working with Dionne Warwick or with uh, Sam Cooke or with um, uh, Nancy Sinatra or whoever, they would introduce us and they would tell the audience who we were. But see, that's just one audience. You know, and that's not enough people to really get to know who the background singers are. So, you know, it's taking this movie that's out now to tell people who these great background singers are. And look at you, Darlene Love. The, the, the whole point of our program here on Growing Boulder is exactly what's happening to you. Here you yeah. are. You've had this incredible career. But now here you are. I think, are you in your 70s now? I turned 72 this year. You know, and you're vibrant, you're attractive, you're still singing, you're you're having the best time of your life. This is the best time of my life because all of the worries and cares that you had as a young adult or growing up with children, my, my children are grown now. I have a fabulous marriage. I've been married 30 years next year. And life is not as hard or, say, complicated as it was 30 or 40 years ago. So, you know, it's all about me sticking to my career, making that 20 feet march from the back to the front. Mm. And just my eye is on the prize. It's on this career. And that's what I do now. And it can be done by anybody at any age. I work out every morning at five o'clock. I I do kickboxing. And there's a lady at one of my classes that's 80 years old. And she's been working out for like 30 or 40 years. So it's not like you can't do it. You do it through your aches and your pains also. Folks, are you catching this? We're talking with Darlene Love, uh, 72 years old, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the greatest background singers of all time, now stepping up and doing her solo thing. And, and you know, Darlene, uh, as you look back on your career, was there, was there any one group, one performer that, that you most enjoyed working with? Yes, actually, it was Sam Cooke. Uh, he just had so much going for him at the time. And he was so positive in what he wanted. You know, he he would tell you it wasn't just about his singing career. He wanted to bring other artists to the front fold. Nobody was actually producing their own singers at that time. Somebody like a Sam Cooke, he went into the recording studio and recorded other artists. That's what he wanted to do. So there's other things to do, and you have to kind of think about that as you get older. Think of something else to do, not just singing, but I've been uh, really blessed to be able to be in great movies and be on Broadway. So, you know, you kind of have to look around and see all the other things that you can do, not just singing. It has to do with singing, but there's other things you can do with your life. Ego could have derailed you, Darlene, from the beginning, but you pushed it aside to follow what you were passionate about, and look where it led you. Well, it had a whole lot to do with people that says you can't do it. (laughs) you're too old and you're not and I have a lot of faith in God that he has given me this talent and he meant for me to use it as long as I could and as long as I feel the way I do I'm I'm healthy, I'm strong I have a a young mind and a young heart I figure I can do this as long as I want to do it till I'm in my 80s whatever, (laughs) if I feel I want to do it, I should be able to do it as long as I want Hey, Darlene, what do you think about what's happened with uh, the music industry and reality television now? I I imagine this would have forced you to come to the front 30 years ago if they had American Idol or The Voice, you know, because there's a lot of background singers now that are are using that platform to get the attention they finally deserve. Do you you like what's happening? 
I like a little of it, uh, some of it, because I think a lot of times the the, the, the choices that they make uh, when they choose the winner, they, they throw them out there after millions of people have seen them. And, you know, they have no stability, you know, of, of a background where they where they started from. You know what I mean? I'm talking about the younger kids today. I'm not talking about uh, the singers who've been singing background and decide to go on those shows. But, you know, they need help along the way. And you, you need to fall down and get back up, fall down and get back up. And they don't have the chance to do that after they've won on those shows. You know what I'm saying? So they have nothing to fall back back on unless they have a strong family union. And I guess, too, like uh, some of those people, those are just people that have a, a talent, but you have a gift and you're an artist because you have a craft. We talked about, you know, seeing you on stage on shows, but people also forget when you're in the studio recording with these guys, it's so different for a backing vocalist, isn't it? It is. You know what? You have to have a good ear and you have to be humble. You can't, even though the Blossoms knew we were the greatest background singers, when you choose us, you, you chose the best. But you don't go in with that attitude. You go in wanting to learn, wanting to do what they asked you to do, and you don't overstep. You know, you let them come to you and with the accolades and tell you how great you are and all that. And it becomes a great job for you. You have to have a good ear. You have to be able to blend. We laugh all the time because I, I sang with Sonny Bono years ago and with Cher, and I would say, I would tell Phil, if you get Sonny out here, you know, we could get through with this. <laughs> hey, Darlene. But, you know, in our, in, in our... actually learn how to blend and make him sound good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, in our last 15, 20 seconds, what, what, what's the takeaway? What can we learn about life from you? You know, you have to take it one day at a time. And I am tr- truly mean, when you wake up in the morning, you have to feel, wow, this is another great day something I can do wonderful for somebody, for myself, or for my family, or for my friends. And you have to take it one day at a time. You can think about the future, but you still have to take a step one day at a time and see what that day presents to you. You know what you are? You are a true superstar, a woman who led her passions lead her to a career that gave her a big part in some of the greatest music of our lives. Hey, if you get the chance, check her out in the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, and also check out her book, a great uh, autobiography that she wrote called My Name is Love. She is Miss Darlene Love. Up next, a new way of thinking from a man with an old-time profession. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. Bill Schaefer here, and this is Growing Boulder. You know, whenever young people think about what they'd like to do for a living, their thoughts usually center around things, you know, like technology. But what about some of the low-tech type of jobs, that kind that take the skill of a craftsman? Well, many of those jobs are disappearing. Saul Cornell has one of those jobs. He's a luthier, a guy who repairs wooden string instruments. Now, here's the twist. He's busier than ever because just as many musicians need his services, but there are fewer and fewer luthiers out there who excel at this vanishing art. To Saul Cornell, precision is everything. We have over here exactly what we wanted, five and a half millimeters, Over here, we probably want three and a half millimeters, always measuring to see if we have the right angles. And no instrument requires more precision than a violin. 4.7, that was lucky. (laughs) 4.75. Saul is obsessed with string instruments, and not playing them, he can't do that at all. 
singing isn't his thing either. What he does is even more important. He repairs and restores those in desperate need of care. Already it's making anguished cries. Like a skilled medic, he has the touch, the intuition to instinctively feel what's wrong. Got a buzz over there? Buzz? And then it disappears. So there's a high area right over here in this fingerboard. And he has the knowledge and delicate skill needed to bring them back to pristine condition. He is a luthier, a highly skilled craftsman, of which there are fewer and fewer all the time. It takes the best part of me and makes use of it. And I feel to be used is one of the best things I could ever ask for in life. And now here you are, a low-tech guy in a high-tech world. Yep, I'm still uh, somewhat in the 18th century. I, I can't get away from it. I don't own a computer here. I don't have a cell phone. Um, there's no fax machine. <laughs> I get along fine without it. I don't seem to have to have it, and uh, I'm okay with it. And Saul, you do the very vanishing thing of working with your hands. Yeah. Which I do. is going away these days. There's a value in that, isn't there? A connection. Yeah. That's one thing that refuses to be uh, machined. Here is your instrument. It's why artists seek him out from all over the country. Okay. Yep. First of all, I would take an instrument. Let me just take this one off the wall that's been worked on. I've been varnishing this one. and Not a valuable one, terribly. And I look at the corners. Are they symmetrical? Are they aesthetically curved in such a way as to look graceful? At an age where most are winding down, his work keeps piling up. How old are you? 73. Going on 74. 73 years old, almost 74. Yeah. Is this the life you expected? No. <laughs> I had no clue what was awaiting me. And how often are you in here working? Every day. Seven days. And there's enough to do? Oh, I couldn't begin to do it. If I had no other people coming to visit me, it would take me five or ten years to, to do what I already have here. It's more than enough work to make a living, but there's more to it than that. I really feel like I'm helping people, and uh, don't get me wrong, I do enjoy making a living, but I, I don't want to be blinded by just money alone. There are other things that, that give me the satisfaction part like uncovering the history behind each creation. They're silent, except for when they sing. And you hopefully you can bring them back and make them sing again. This one instrument went through so many owners, and uh, each owner brought with it a, uh, a deeply evocative story. Let's see what it says about it. It is a vie, uh, Francois Guillemot probably Aix-la-Chapelle. It's a French instrument, and it says 1892. Some are quite ornate. Others have been around for quite a while. Oh, probably a good hundred years old. And some are downright huge. This is a double bass viol. I had one bass come in one time with, uh, let's say, there were, I think, a, a hive of bees that were living up here. <laughs> the only thing that hasn't stung him is the retirement bug. This 73-year-old shows no signs of slowing down. Yeah, I can't see vegetating and retiring and, and just fishing or something like that uh, for the rest of my life. I want to keep on fabricating, doing, uh, learning, and getting better at what I do. Because Saul Cornell has learned a critical lesson, one that applies to both violins and people. The older things are, the more interesting, the more of a story they have to tell. Don't you love his philosophy? What a great point. And it's just the same with people. The more life experiences we have, the more interesting we become, and the more stories 
we have to tell. And it was really interesting to watch Saul work. You can tell he cares about every instrument in his shop. And speaking of that, the guy has so much work and so many pieces in his workshop, he says it'll take years to get caught up. Saul Cornell is a great example of a guy who followed his passion to find purpose in a different way than he ever expected. When you see someone who's achieved a great deal of success in life, you don't always see the struggles that it took them to get there. Cecily Wilson has the story of a man who overcame racism and more for his spot right next to one of the most famous women in the world. How's this for a resume item? Being the makeup artist to one of the biggest stars in television history. For 20 years, Reggie Wells was the personal makeup artist of Oprah Winfrey. From the very first time they met, Reggie says it was love at first blush. It was the break of a lifetime, especially for a life filled with tough breaks. Wells's youth had been a struggle and a constant battle against racial prejudice, sexual abuse, and something even more unacceptable, something 1950s America didn't quite know how to deal with. Reggie was gay. You didn't fit in, did you? And you know what? Thank God I didn't, because if I had, I would have been just an ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill child. I was a child that if I wanted to sing and dance and get on my toes, I could get away with it, because you bet not mess with Reggie. Reggie didn't let the ridicule or bullying stop him from pursuing his passion, but he did face obstacles at nearly every turn. Even a school counselor told him there were no black fashion designers so he wouldn't be able to chase that dream. Reggie took a job as a school teacher to make ends meet, but after eight years of imploring students to follow their dreams, Reggie realized he just couldn't give up on his. One freelance makeup job led to another, and then that fateful call from, you guessed it, Lady O. And he says the moral of his story is, don't allow anyone to take your life from you. Now in his late 60s, Reggie Wells is growing bolder. Cecily Wilson with a story of success in the face of adversity. Up next, she became a supermodel at the age of 50. Her secrets to looking your best at any age. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. Bill Schaefer here, and this is Growing Bolder. I'm going to go back to the 1970s for a minute because that's when our next guest started as a celebrity makeup artist. But even then, in an era of foundation, rouge, and, of course, the blue eyeshadow, she's always emphasized a clean, natural look. And then her life took an additionally inspiring twist later when at the age of 49 she became a Ford Agency supermodel. She did it by not covering up her age, but by embracing it in a way that made her a pro-aging sensation. I'm sure you've seen her ads for any number of clothing stores. She's done countless magazine covers like Oprah, Glamour, and Mademoiselle, all the time being a makeup minimalist. She even has her own line called Boom. So let's say hi to Cindy Joseph. How are you, Cindy? I am very good. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, sure, but I've got to hit you with this one right off the bat, too, because everybody, Cindy, everybody knows you can't look young without caking it on. And then here you come, insisting there's a better way to do your makeup. Well, actually, the truth of the matter is, the more you cake it on, the older you look. (laughs) So why do we do it? You see it all the time. Well, that is the question. Yes. Women are judged by how they look more heavily than any other aspect of their life. And then we're told that our looks disappear, go away, we're over the hill, 
starting at about age 30, 35. So women are led to believe that their value goes down as their age goes up. And we want to be valued, adored, loved, and flirted with our entire life. (laughs) So we do whatever we can to look as young as possible for as long as possible. And the truth is, it doesn't work. Everybody knows how old you are, no matter what you do. And number two, there is a beauty at every age, not just in our 20s and 30s. We just turn into a whole nother kind of beautiful each decade of our lives. And when women start celebrating, not accepting, but embracing and celebrating their age, then society's viewpoint will follow suit. Well, I can see why people... I can see why they love listening to you, Cindy, because that's great. It's very empowering. And your story is really interesting, too. And you've, like anybody else, you always wanted to look your best, but you kind of always had this love-hate relationship with makeup. Is it true that you got so frustrated back in your high school days that you threw all your makeup away? Well, that's exactly right. I was addicted to makeup. And on one hand, it was just fun. I liked the stuff and the goo and the cream and the colors and all that and playing with my friends. But a big part of it was I looked in the mirror and I did not see what I wanted to see. So I taught myself every technique I could to change the way I looked. And when I kind of got a little older and woke up and smelled the coffee, I realized this is completely absurd. And I just threw it all in the garbage and said, that's it. I became an au naturel flower child of the 60s in California (laughs) with no makeup at all. And uh, then I reached a happy medium, you know, a few years later and thought, okay, I really feel good about shaving my legs. (laughs) But I don't feel good about altering myself to the point that you couldn't recognize me if I didn't have makeup on. And I thought, you know what, I want to infiltrate the very business that sort of convinced me that I did need to do that, or at least, you know, I felt that way, and got right into the heart of the fashion industry. Now, how how, how, my, how yeah. does that happen, Cindy, at the age of four? Was, is that true? You were 49 when you became a model? When I became when I became a model, when I became a professional makeup artist, I was much younger. I did makeup for about twenty seven years before I started modeling. You you and even that, yeah you even yeah. catapulted up to you were at the top of of your entire profession as, as a makeup artist. Yes, yes, I traveled the world. I worked with all the supermodels and celebrities of the time. I had a wonderful career. Enjoyed every minute of it. Worked with wonderful people. And one thing I want to make really clear, as I'm not against makeup and hair and whatever women want to do to themselves, but I just say pay attention to what's motivating you. If it's fun and pleasure, go for it. If it's fear that's motivating you, then you might want to take a second look and consider what you're doing. Wow. Great stuff, Cindy. Again, let's go back to this part where you become a model at at 50. How does that happen? Well, (laughs) you could have knocked me over with a feather because I'd been in the industry for so long. I knew what a model was. And when I looked in the mirror, I certainly didn't see an 18-year-old girl about 18 feet tall at about 18 pounds. (laughs) So I was approached on the street totally out of the blue by a casting agent asking if she could take my Polaroid because she wanted to bring it in. They were casting for this Dolce & Gabbana campaign. Hmm. And I thought it was a joke. I looked around the corner to see if my friends were playing a trick on me. And once I understood she was looking for, you know, an older woman to put in this couple with a younger guy, I said, okay, take my Polaroid. And that was it. And they called me the next day and said, you're on, girl. And it literally launched my what's now 14-year modeling career. It's incredible. And you are everywhere. I mean, when people see your photo, they'll say, oh, my gosh, I remember her from this or that. And that evolved into your line of makeup, Boom. What makes Boom different? Well, I tell you, women were approaching me almost on a daily basis and saying, oh, oh, you're her, you're her. Look, look, I'm growing out my silver hair because of you, your pictures on my refrigerator, etc." And I realized women are ready for this. Women are ready to start celebrating their age. And when they saw me, a woman with 
got it. Hey, Cindy, we're kind of losing you. I don't know if you walked out of the room or not, but if you can readjust okay. yourself a little bit more. So, so boom, I, I understand the, the attitude behind it, but how is it different? What should people, what should people do to look better at the age they are? Well, basically, all you have to do is get happy. Ah. The happier you are, the more attractive you are. When a woman's having a good time, she is magnetic. And what I've noticed, being a makeup artist all my life and paying attention to skin tone, etc., I see what happens to the face. And when a woman is having a really good time, her skin revs up with color, it becomes dewy, kind of glistening, and almost glimmery. There's a radiance there. So I wanted to create a cosmetic line that, first off, took all the mystery out of makeup, pretty straightforward, plain and simple, multitasking um, little tubes called boomsticks, one for color, and this color works on all skin tones. And nobody believes me, but it truly does. I had 27 years to test it out on every skin tone there is. And it's for your lips, for your cheeks, forehead, anywhere that you naturally get color. And then there's uh, Boomstick Glow, which is moisturizer in a stick. So when you're on the go, quick and easy, and you just want to add a little glow or, you know, little moisturizer to your skin, you can do it in a split second. And the other is Boomstick Glimmer, and that's where the radiance comes from. And that's it, including a wonderful overall body moisturizer. All right, Cindy, give us, a, before we leave, give us a quick takeaway. What can we learn? What do you hope we all learn from your story? Taking joy in living is a woman's best cosmetic. Perfect. What a great way to end. And folks, you can learn more about Cindy and check out the complete Boom line of cosmetics at boombycindyjoseph.com. Thanks, Cindy. Up next, not only did he have to find his way through living with Asperger's, but find out what happened when he discovered his son had it too. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill Schaefer here on Growing Bolder, and this next segment is for anyone who's ever had the experience of feeling like there's something a little bit off, like you just don't quite fit in that you're different than everybody else and you can't quite put your finger on why. It's about a man with Asperger's who grew up in the 1960s before really anybody understood what that was. In fact, we knew very little about autism at all. But instead of being limited by it, he found a way to thrive. And today he's a well-known autism and Asperger's spokesman and best-selling author whose newest book, Raising Cubby, A Father and Son's Adventure with Asperger's, is really changing people's ideas of what this is all about. So let's say hi to John Elder Robeson. Hey, John, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me with you today. Great to have you on the show. And first of all, thank you for standing tall and putting yourself out there as an example to other people. That's, you know, that's not an easy, what couldn't have been an easy decision for you to make? Well, it was unsettling at first, but then, you know, the more I did it, the more used to it I got, and it's, you know, it's pretty much okay now. In a way, was it kind of therapeutic? Um, I don't think it was therapeutic. It was anxiety-provoking at first because I felt that uh, people would, you know, read the stories and be um, um, critical or dismissive of me or maybe attack me, but that proved to just be my own in- insecurity, and, and indeed people were... Um, inspired and encouraged by the stories. Yeah, do you think that that as a society, I, it seems like we're very interested in people who are different, who understand that and are trying to use their differences uh, to better themselves, to become productive, and that that's basically your story, isn't it? Um, yes, that's true. And and while it's easy to look back at it, you know, now and say, well, people do find it inspiring. 
it's certainly true that if you grow up and your father is, you know, an alcoholic or, you know, you get, you know, beat up by, you know, somebody in your family, something like that, you often think that's a shameful secret and you don't tell anyone about it. And, and I think that I viewed my own upbringing in that light. So it took a bit of a leap for me to be able to um, to um, actually speak about it. Do you think that you would have done this uh, had you not had a son with Asperger's? Do you think that was what kind of made you want to shout out to the world, hey, this is what this is what we're like? Um, I think that what made me want to do that was the um, was the realization that um, I was empowered by understanding how I was different, and I knew that there must be thousands, if not millions, of young people growing up just like me, and I felt that they could benefit from knowing what I didn't learn until middle age. Were you surprised, John, watching your son grow up with the disease, with with what his differences were and, and the struggles that he went through to try to find his place? Well, first of all, it's, it's not a disease. It's a, it's a neurological difference. And, and when my son was growing up, um, we were not aware that he was different in the same way as me because I didn't learn about my own Asperger's until my son was in second grade. Wow. Um, however, when my son was growing up, I was um, able to see him have the same social struggles that I had as a little boy. And so I recognized him as having the same, some same issues as me, but I had no name for them. Um, when I learned about Asperger's and myself, I naturally thought, well, my son has some of those traits, but um, I didn't actually get a diagnosis for my son until he was uh, 17 years old, just about. Now, now, that's a great point to get into the story a little bit. I mean, you call him Cubby, and he was a brilliant chemist at the age of 17, but you tell the story about his own, how his own creativity almost landed him in jail. Well, that's right. Yeah, he became very interested in uh, in the physics of uh, of explosives and chemistry, and he would make you know videos of experiments, and he'd put them online. And you know, and his videos never showed him damaging you know any property or doing anything bad. But the sophisticated conversations he had online, I think, were um, alarming and unsettling to some of the authorities in today's climate of fear. Yeah, and they weren't so sure that he wasn't a terrorist. You know, when we when you tell the story, I'm sure you get a chuckle from people, but that had to terrify you. Well, I think what the, what happened was my son's um, explanations were so sophisticated that the uh, ATF people looked at what he said, and they were convinced there was um, an adult with an advanced knowledge of explosives chemistry that was posing as a child to pass on lessons, as it were. And I think they were as surprised as anyone to discover there was nothing more to the story than a a 16-year-old kid who used his allowance money to go to the hardware store and buy common chemicals and make them into these things. I think, frankly, they were shocked at that. He's very, very clever and very smart, just like his dad. You were a high school dropout, but you excelled in electronics, and you even created signature guitars for the band KISS. Uh, that's true, yeah. I left uh, home, and, and I joined a band, and I worked for progressively larger bands until I was hired by um sound company that Pink Floyd had, had founded to uh, lease their sound gear out when they weren't on tour, and, and that was how I met the folks from KISS. And, and so, yes, I'm known for having made those things. John, John, what made you first start thinking that, well, maybe I should get tested for Asperger's, too? Uh, nothing, actually. I had no idea of it, and I left electronics because I couldn't fit in in larger companies, and, and when I started my car business, I got to know some of our clients here, and one of them was a therapist who, after observing me for a few years, he came in one day and said, you know, you could be the poster boy for this condition, and he handed me a book on it, and, and it was uh, the most striking revelation for me to learn that. John, what do you wish we understood about Asperger's? Uh, I wish that we understood that when people behave in inappropriate or unexpected ways, that most of the time when that happens, the people haven't got a clue to what's gone wrong. 
And, and I think rather than being judgmental and, and immediately assuming that the person is out to get you, I think that we would all benefit from extending some compassion and, and maybe the benefit of the doubt when people behave in unexpected ways. And how is, uh, how is Cubby doing these days? I'm, you know, he's an adult. Well, he um, ultimately uh, triumphed, as readers saw in the book, and Cubby's continuing his uh, studies at the university, and he's working on a project called Open Chem Lab to create a uh, automated uh, open-source chemistry lab system so that uh, the fruits of chemistry would be within reach of anyone, just as... Um, you know, computers make it possible to do all sorts of analyses where you may not know the underlying math, but you can, you can still get the results. You know, you don't have to be an engineer to benefit from the computer. And he wants to do the same for chemistry. But, you know, the contributions from people with differences of all kinds in our society really are the fabric of what make us great. And in your first two books, Be Different and Look Me in the Eye. These are fascinating and important reads, as is his latest called Raising Cubby. He is a one-man warrior for autism and Asperger's understanding. His name is John Elder Roberson. John, thanks so much for the visit. Up next, a frank, honest, and maybe a little bawdy look at dating over the age of 50. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Bill Schaefer and Growing Boulder back with you, ready to introduce you to someone whose voice may be familiar as a longtime NPR commentator on All Things Considered. She's one of those people who seems to be able to laugh even during the toughest times, and she has had a few of those. But she was a columnist for Ladies Home Journal, writing teacher at the University of Baltimore. You've seen her on the Today Show, Politically Incorrect, and even Oprah. Her stories of being middle-aged and single are all these things, hilarious, reflective, honest, and quite helpful, especially her latest. It's a romp through the good and bad of life alone called Highs in the Low 50s, How I Stumbled Through the Joys of Single Living. Let's get a different perspective from Marion Winnick. Hey, Marion, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Hey, what's it like to be out there in the dating world when you're over 50? Well, it's a little rocky, as I uh, documented in my book. Yeah, it's different, um, though. It's rocky in a different way than, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can ask any uh, 20-something-year-old also, and they'll tell you it's kind of rocky, but it's it's a tougher in, in a lot of ways now, isn't it? Yeah, well, first of all, the, the pool is much smaller. <laughs> um, a lot of people, you know, have paired up and are off the market for good, though some are always coming back on. Um, you know, and even more than that, people have much more uh, baggage than they had in their 20s and a lot more history. And um, in, in some ways, it's more like looking at people and finding out what you can't put up with rather than actually going out with a you know, wish list and checking things off. Uh, well, let's go back a little bit to kind of set the story up. Can you talk a little bit about losing your husband and dealing with that and having to move on in, in the aftermath? Well, you know, I've lost two husbands now. I was widowed in my 30s, which was kind of tough. Then I was a single mom for a while. Then I met my second husband, and that was great for about 10 years. And um, and then uh, it ended in not so great and divorce in 2008. And by then I was, we had had another kid, so I had um, kids that were off at college and a little girl. And we were living way out in the country, and um, I kind of saw that my prospects for just about everything were limited in the country. So I moved to the city of Baltimore where I already worked as a writing teacher at a college. And the second I got here, you know, I kind of launched into thinking that things were just going to go great right away. And um, I first 
looked in my, you know, around my immediate neighborhood and ended up dating a construction worker who was remodeling my basement, who actually was um, an illegal immigrant from El Salvador and barely, and didn't speak English. So <laughs> um, I was very open-minded, as you can see. Yeah. But I went on to have many, many different um, uh, experiences, including a neuroscientist from Johns Hopkins. Ooh. So I wasn't limited only to the non-English speaking pool. And um, it just seemed like everything was a funny story, but nothing was, you know, true love and romance that I had been thinking of. Do you sort of look at the watch and do you feel that the more pressure with each date to try to make something work or do you get more frustrated? No. I mean, I, I felt almost less pressure because the, as it went on, I, I started realizing this is just not like it was when you were in your 20s and 30s and um, – you know, these rituals of dating and mating are quite different when you're older. <laughs> and so the more it went on, the, I would say the, the more I became a little more jaded and realizing that, you know, this might not be as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, so I can't, I, I had some fun and um, I met some nice people, but it just, um, it started to make me feel that I was looking, that I was seeking something that wasn't even maybe necessary because uh, I was realizing that so many things in my life were already great. Um, I already have all these kids and these friends and this job and a really nice dog. And the more these bad dates went on, the more I started thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> do I really have to do this? <laughs> and um, I guess, you know, that that's the story of the book is me sort of, concluding that while I'm not giving up for good, being single at my age has is actually pretty rewarding and much more doable than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago, I think. Uh, and it, we should make clear, too, you didn't try to shoulder everything on your own. You did go to therapy, which a lot of people choose to do, and that kind of revealed some interesting things to you, too. Right. Well, the therapist had me... Uh, write down everything I was looking for in a man, and and then she went over it and looked at me and said, "Marion, I think you want to date yourself." <laughs> uh, because, Don't we you know, all? I was sort of. All right, everything I wanted, I you know, want someone who loves movies and loves books and loves miniature dachshunds and you know loves to eat and loves to drink, and it was just me that I had described. Hey, what's and, what's um, wrong with that? <laughs> well. It's a little, you know, looking for such a tight blueprint doesn't always work as well. And I have to say that some of the relationships that worked out the best, and and several of them have turned into long-term friendships, actually, were with people that were nothing like me. So I have to say that this, like, wish list thing wasn't the greatest on earth. And that kind of um, gives a bit of meaning to the online dating situation where people are saying, I am like this and I want this. And then, you know, trying, trying to match up with your missing puzzle piece or something. So, Marion, while, while you were looking for that guy, do you kind of feel like maybe, you know, since you were in Baskin-Robbins, having all 31 flavors turned out to be a better deal than just finding, you know, vanilla? Um, I don't know if I'd go that far. Ah, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was rocky, and there were times I didn't have many big heartbreaks, but there were a couple situations that were sad, and, uh, you know, I was really sad that they didn't work out. Um, a lot of the time it was more just icky because I felt really bad about having to tell someone that, you know, that wasn't working out for me or just the whole scenario of, getting things started and then realizing they weren't going to work out is very hard yeah. um, emotionally, and it's, I couldn't stand it, actually. It's not fun. <laughs> I hated walking into that coffee shop and taking one look and going, oh, no, you know, and then trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this. And um, sometimes, it, sometimes I didn't get out of it too, too you know, easily. So, <laughs> so. How, how are you doing now? Where are you? Oh, um, I'm doing great, actually. I... I feel, like I said, uh, sort of previewed, that I have found that single living is not a you know, disastrous emergency that must be uh, remedied as soon as possible. So I've developed a much more relaxed attitude about the whole thing and, and did have a pretty fun relationship for the earlier this year that also didn't work out. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, that counseling that people always tell you when you stop looking, things start happening – 
Well, I can't. I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but it has been much better to get off the hunt. You know, you know, Ma- I've definitely called off the hunt. <laughs> Marion, you are so fun to talk to, and the book reads the same way you talk. It's just light. It's fun. There's every there's oh. things people will relate to all the way through the book, and that's you know, it's sharing story that many many people are going through these days. It's called Highs in the Low Fifties, and you can learn more about it. And it's compelling author at Marion Winnick. That's M A R I O N. W-I-N-I-K dot com. Thanks, Marion. Well, that's it for now. But remember, Growing Boulder does not stop here. In fact, it's just beginning. You'll find hundreds more interviews just like the ones you've heard today with TV stars, movie stars, rock stars, sports stars, authors, business leaders, medical experts, wellness experts, financial experts, travel experts, and regular people. Do you get the idea, folks, who have found their way to living exciting lives? All of it is at growingbolder.com. You'll also find information there on where to watch Growing Boulder television and how to subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine. So until next time, ask yourself one question. How are you? Growing Boulder. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon, said I